If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The Six Wives are just such a fascinating story. It's like a soap opera, but it's real and it happened. Six is just a mad number of wives because it was a really tumultuous time to be a queen. England, everyone knows how Henry behaves with the people who betray him or just the people he thinks betrayed him. You literally couldn't make it up. It's a story of such drama, twists and turns. I think she deserves redemption, really, from um, how history has painted her out to be. She was such a risk that the king had to go to unprecedented lengths to kill her. They are each fascinating, quite apart from the fact that their stories became entwined with the most notorious king in our history. Divorced. Beheaded. Died. Divorced. Beheaded. Survived. When it comes to juicy historical sagas, they don't come much better than the marital history of England's most notorious monarch. But after centuries of myth have built up around this story, has it clouded our view of the real women involved? Hello and welcome back to this History Extra podcast series, Six Wives. I'm Ellie Cawthorn, and with the help of expert historians, I'll be peeling back those layers of myth-making to take a fresh look at these six fascinating women who shaped the course of Henry's reign and the history of England. In this episode, we're revisiting the tragic story of Henry's fifth wife, Catherine Howard, a teenaged bride who captivated the king but was ultimately brought down by scandals from her past that refused to remain buried. Joining me this episode to give this much maligned young queen a fair hearing is Kate McCaffrey, a historian and researcher and curator at Hever Castle. I think Catherine really epitomises for me the misunderstood kind of character of Henry's wives. You know, she really suffered at the hands of the patriarchy into the 16th century. But I also think she speaks to the sort of multifaceted modern woman. You know, she has been reduced to this role that's defined by her sexuality, whereas really there was so much more to her. So how did a teenage girl become the Queen of England? Especially since at the time she met the king, he was newly married to someone else. Well, to give us the lowdown, Kate and I were also joined by historian Dr Tracy Borman, Joint Chief Curator of Historic Royal Palaces and the author of books including Henry VIII and the Men Who Made Him and The Private Lives of the Tudors. I asked Tracy to remind us what was happening in Henry's life at the time that Catherine appeared on the scene. 
So today we would call it a midlife crisis, but in Tudor times, it was towards the end of a life crisis, really, because Henry is almost 50 years old. So that would have been seen as pretty much old age, really, in Tudor times. Now, he has been through four marriages, but he is ever the optimist when it comes to his love life. And now, as he contemplates marrying again for the fifth time, love is very much on Henry's mind. And I think in Catherine Howard, he sees the opportunity to recapture his lost youth. And who was this girl that became the object of Henry's affections? The person he believed would help him to regain a lost vitality. I think what's interesting about Catherine's early life, or what we know of it, is that it's it's mainly seen through a sort of retrospective lens from the testimonies of those who were questioned during her downfall. So her very early life we know little about. It's more her life in the care of the Dowager Duchess of Norfolk where she really comes to the fore. But she was born into a very influential family. She was born as part of the Howard family, so the ancestral Dukes of Norfolk. She was the cousin of one of Henry's wives already, wife number two, Anne Boleyn. But although she was born into this kind of gentry family of great noble birth, she wasn't born into that kind of financial opportunity through her parents. Her father, Edmund Howard, was very much in debt. He had to actually move to Calais to escape his accreditors. So although Catherine was born into this kind of noble family, she really didn't have quite the same financial opportunities that her cousins and the rest of her family did. It's believed that Catherine first captured Henry's eye when she was a maid of honour to his short-lived previous wife, Anne of Cleves, an appointment that would alter the course of Catherine's life. But it wasn't all about being in the right place at the right time. Catherine also had an eager family pushing her into the king's eyeline. In fact, it was her uncle, the Duke of Norfolk, who secured her the position in Anne of Cleves' household in the first place. The Howards are all powerful. They're one of the major families in England and have long been a dominant force in Henry's court. And they spy an opportunity, particularly Thomas Howard, Duke of Norfolk, because they know that the king is not exactly enamoured of his fourth wife, Anne of Cleves. And they very deliberately position this attractive young woman, Catherine Howard, knowing that she's bound to be appealing to Henry when he's married to someone who he finds physically quite repellent. And I think as well, she's a cousin of of Anne Boleyn, there may have been a trace of a sort of family resemblance. So yes, the Howards spy an opportunity. It's possible that they make sure Henry meets Catherine on the very same evening he meets Anne of Cleves because she's part of the entourage of the fourth wife. We don't know exactly. This is when I do feel a bit sorry for Henry because you see just how manipulated he is by the men around him. And yes, he should have known better, but they flatter him and they put forward this, you know, attractive young woman and he just can't help himself. By June 1540, within just six months of his disastrous marriage to Anne of Cleves, it was widely known that Henry's interest lay elsewhere. And it's easy to see why the Howards fixed on Catherine as potential bait for the king. Because she was already charming his royal court. 
she seems to have been really quite captivating. She was vivacious, she was beautiful by all accounts. She'd learnt music, poetry, dancing. These are the kinds of pursuits that she seems to have loved. She doesn't, unlike her cousin, seem to have gone down the route of vying for sort of political influence or even religious influence. She seems much more the kind of typical teenage girl, really. She is so young at this point. As is the case with several of Henry's wives, it's unclear from the sources exactly when Catherine was born. So it's hard to pin down her exact age at this time. But like Kate says, it's thought that she was in her late teens when she caught the king's attention. And remember, Tracy said that Henry was approaching 50 at this time, which means that there was around a 30-year age gap between the pair. Was that typical for the period? It was fairly common for much older men to take, you know, young wives. Marriages were often made for dynastic reasons. And of course, you know, the younger the woman, the more likely she was to bear children. And it didn't really matter so much about the man's age. In finding his next spouse from among his current wife's ladies-in-waiting, Henry was following a now well-established pattern. And yet again, there's some messy overlap here between wife number four and wife number five. We think there may have even been a slight flirtation when Catherine first joined the court of Henry VIII. She caught so many people's eyes, it's no doubt that she likely also caught Henry's. But in terms of their actual relationship, it's only two weeks after the annulment with Anne of Cleves's marriage that, that she actually marries Henry. And it's almost certain that there's some kind of relationship started before that point, if not in a physical way, at least in intentions. But there's a sense now of just wives coming thick and fast and this being one of the surest means to get ahead, really. Power is up for grabs and the best way of getting it is through helping the king to another marriage. Someone who'd been instrumental in helping Henry in and out of previous marriages was his chief minister, Thomas Cromwell. He'd been the one steering the king through these messy transitions between wives. But by this point, Cromwell's star had fallen, and the timing of his ultimate downfall was eerie, to say the least. I find it hard to forgive Henry for the fact that he chooses the same day as Thomas Cromwell's execution to marry Catherine Howard, as if to prove how little he cares for the demise of his once faithful minister. With Cromwell out of the picture, Henry was left to navigate the beginnings of this new marriage by himself. We've mentioned already that there was a 30-year age gap between the pair, as well as a very obvious power imbalance. But did the sources give us any insight into how Catherine really felt about the match? Was there a possibility of genuine romantic interest on her part? Or did she see it as an opportunity for power and influence? Or perhaps simply an obligation to fulfil her duty to her family and to her king. I think certainly it has to fall more under a duty and an opportunity than genuine romantic interest from Catherine's part. You know, he was so much older than her, that 30-year age gap. His waistband had expanded considerably over the last five to ten years. He had an ulcer on his leg. It was oozing pus. You know, I don't think he was necessarily the most physically attractive prospect for Catherine. We don't have any surviving documentary evidence because I'd love to know exactly what was going through her head in that point. But we know I think she enjoyed the perks of, of becoming his queen. She enjoyed being 
showered with gifts and jewels. But in terms of the personal relationship between them when doors were closed, I think there must have been a bit of trepidation as well, really, because, you know, she was very much aware of the fates of the four wives who had gone before her, one of whom was her cousin. So there must have been a bit of fear involved. But I do think we cannot underplay the age card here for Catherine. She was very young. She was very inexperienced at court. She'd only moved, been in court for less than a year, really, before Henry decides to make her his queen. So in comparison to some of the other wives, even Anne of Cleves, who had grown up in a, in a different royal court, Catherine had really only been in quite a sheltered world. So I think really she, she was unprepared in many ways, more than naive. Henry, meanwhile, was blissful at the prospect of this new marriage. It's pretty clear that he was driven by sexual attraction here. But that wasn't his only motivation. He was still holding out for that spare heir. Absolutely. This was always a strong motivation for Henry in marrying yet again. Although he was having trouble in that respect, there were more than rumours of impotence. He'd been unable to consummate his marriage to Anne of Cleves, blaming all of that on her, of course. But even as early as his marriage to Anne Boleyn, he'd clearly been having some troubles. So it was perhaps an unlikely prospect, but it was still a motivation for Henry. He needed a spare heir. He just had Prince Edward and on that fragile life rested the entire future of the Tudor dynasty, or so Henry thought. On the 28th of July, 1540, the pair were married at Oatlands Palace in Surrey. Henry's new bride has often been written off in the centuries since as a teenaged heirhead, but once Catherine became queen, she adapted well to the role. Catherine took the role of Queen Consort very seriously indeed. You know, she she really played the role of the passive consort absolutely brilliantly. Unlike, again, her cousin Anne, who was, was more interested in maybe having a bit more attention or a bit more agency and political influence, Catherine was much more happy to be the accessory to Henry, which is something that I think is easy to look back on now as in a less positive light. But actually, that was the role of the Queen Consort, and, and she played that role brilliantly, which was, was the safest way to do so. And she was very popular with the people when they went on their their progress in the summer of 1541. She really was received very well. And that's significant because the public didn't always offer a warm reception to Henry's new brides. Anne Boleyn had received jibes and jeering from the people of London a few years earlier. But according to the ambassador Eustace Chapuis, Catherine, on the other hand, was honoured with, quote, a most splendid reception. But while she went down a storm with the people, the match was less of a hit at court. I think there was also quite a lot of sniping among the ambassadors in particular, one of whom was sort of horrified by the age gap to start with, but also the fact that Henry can't keep his hands off her. He's sort of pawing her in public. And one of the uh, eyewitnesses said, you know, he bent far more on this wife than any of the others. He's showering Catherine with jewels and clothes and other gifts. I kind of think sugar daddy, really, when when I think of uh, Henry VIII and Catherine Howard. And Catherine did love the finer things in life, so she was probably happy with that aspect of the marriage, if not the marriage in totality. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Henry had come in very hot and heavy with his new bride. This was the sort of enthusiastic passion he hadn't displayed for a wife since Anne Boleyn. And it's interesting looking at Henry's marital history. Each wife tends to be, in some respect, the opposite of the one before. So Catherine Howard, very attractive, younger than Anne of Cleves, in fact, probably half Anne of Cleves' age, an English rose. Henry apparently called her his rose without a thorn. All very, very different to Anne of Cleves. And we saw how Anne Boleyn, of course, very different to Jane Seymour. And so it goes on. He seems to kind of just switch, go for the complete opposite. He's, he's a man forever on the rebound, I think. But while the king was clearly infatuated with his new bride, his mission to acquire a spare heir wasn't an immediate success. There was talk of one pregnancy that I can find in April 1541. So they'd be married for about sort of nine, ten months, something like that. So it would, it would sort of fit. But then either it was a false rumour or there was a miscarriage. We don't know. But that was pretty much it. And I think the, the overwhelming evidence suggests that probably this was another marriage like Anne of Cleves that Henry was unable to consummate. Although Catherine didn't conceive her own child by Henry, in marrying him, she did acquire three stepchildren. And considering the fact that she still may have been a teenager herself, this wasn't necessarily the easiest dynamic to navigate. Yeah, I think the the relationship that Catherine had with her stepchildren was strained, to say the least. I think in terms of Edward and Elizabeth, they were much younger, so they were less of a role in Catherine's life. But Mary in particular, she seems to have had an interesting relationship with. So Edward at this point is around three years old, I think, and Elizabeth is about seven, and Mary is 25. So she's older than her new stepmother. Mary believes that she is the social superior of Catherine in many ways. Catherine's come from nowhere. 
But I think for Mary as well, there's probably a bit of triggering muscle memory going on in terms of seeing the same faction, the Howard faction at court who supported the Queen who took down her own mother, rising again with another of their nieces, with Catherine Howard. And again, if there is that familial resemblance, perhaps, I think it probably did trigger a lot of memories of of Mary's childhood and sometimes cruel treatment under Anne. I think we see some evidence of friction through ambassadorial reports. We see reports of Catherine threatening to take away some of Mary's maidservants, which is a threat I believe she eventually pulls through on one, I think. By the time they go on progress in the summer of 1541, there's been some kind of melting of tensions. There are rumours that Mary is going to be restored perhaps to the line of succession as the second in line, and maybe Catherine thinks that I'd better keep on her good side. But certainly at the beginning in particular, there are these tensions and this friction that can be seen by by many people at court. In this podcast series, we've charted the rise and fall of Henry's wives over the years. But that story is also shadowed by another, the rise and fall of his three children. And their status has fluctuated depending on who sat beside their father on the throne. So Edward is always Henry's precious jewel, as he called him. So his position is secure. He doesn't really care which stepmother he has because he's the heir to the throne. It has much more of an impact, as Kate says, on the on the daughters, on Mary and Elizabeth. And I think that of the two of them, yes, there's definitely friction between Mary and Catherine. But it's good news for Elizabeth. She's a, a blood relative of Catherine. And Catherine does make a bit of a fuss of Elizabeth, this forgotten younger daughter who is seen by most of the kingdom as illegitimate, the daughter of the scandalous concubine Anne Boleyn. But now her mother's cousin is queen consort. So things are looking a bit rosier for Elizabeth. Another awkward relationship to navigate was with Henry's ex-wife, Anne of Cleves, who'd remained at the English court after her annulment. On the 3rd of January, 1541, Catherine's skills of diplomacy were put to the test when Anne presented herself at Hampton Court. But despite the inevitable awkwardness of the situation, Catherine, quote, received her most kindly, showing her great favour and courtesy. She even presented Anne with two lapdogs and a ring. And this show of respect and warmth was seen as a classy move from the new young queen. But while Catherine was beginning to find her feet it seemed like Henry was losing his footing. On the one hand, Henry is ecstatic with his new bride, showering her with gifts. He can't keep his hands off her. He's clearly like a love-struck teenager all over again. But there are also reports that actually Henry is starting to suffer from depression, I think we would call it today. One observer at court said he had a, a mal d'esprit or a, you know, a, a poor spirit. He's feeling very melancholy. He's seeking quite a lot of privacy. And I think at heart, Henry knows what he has become. Physically, he's not the man he was. And there's something, I think, quite depressing for Henry, as well as uplifting, about having this beautiful young bride and just knowing that he himself is just far beyond that. This is Henry edging ever closer to the image that we all know. Ageing, bitter and irascible. Ready to lash out at anyone who undermined, disappointed or threatened him. Exactly as he had done with Thomas Cromwell. His image as a playboy Renaissance prince was slipping ever further away. 
And actually, something I think quite relatable is that he takes this much younger wife and he goes on a diet. He goes, he starts to try to restrict his eating. He starts to exercise more, you know, lay off the booze a bit. So he does his best, but it's kind of too little too late, I'm afraid, for poor old Henry. And before long, Henry's ego was to be dealt another blow. When rumours began to swirl around the king's new young wife. During the summer of 1541, that's the real turning point, they go on a very successful northern progress um, in the sort of aftermath of the pilgrimage of grace. This is where they, they enter into some tricky situations with Catherine, inviting the intentions or seem to be inviting the attentions of one of Henry's own gentlemen of the privy chamber, and that is Thomas Culpepper. And this is where Culpepper visits Catherine's rooms at night several times while they're away on progress. And it's when Catherine gets back and and Henry returned to Hampton Court, that Henry is told by a letter by his Archbishop, Thomas Cranmer, of some things that have come up in Catherine's past, because it's not only her, her present situation, but it's her past that comes back to haunt her. There's a lot to unpack here. So let's take things one step at a time. Firstly, those accusations Kate referred to about Catherine's past. These revolved around premarital sexual experiences with older men, when Catherine was a child living in the household of her step-grandmother, the Dowager Duchess of Norfolk. There are two key relationships in Catherine's youth um, that, that are brought up, and the first is with someone who was her music teacher, Henry Mannix. Catherine was at least around the age of only 13 at this point, so she's very, very young. And the second is with a man named Francis Deerham, who is the secretary to her step-grandmother. With Mannix, it seems that they did nothing more than fool around. And with Deerham, it seems that they went the whole way. There is testimony from accounts that were taken uh, during the investigation of her downfall of maidservants and people who slept in the same rooms who say that they heard and saw things that would suggest that, that Francis and Catherine did actually have sex. But there is a really skewed power dynamic here, I think, with both relationships, you know, not just of age, but also of gender. Some historians, I think, have brought up the class dynamic in terms of Catherine being in perhaps more of a position of power in that way. But I absolutely think that it's really quite gross, to be honest, looking back in terms of seeing the age differences and just the skewed power that was at play during those relationships. Obviously, we'll never know exactly how these experiences of Catherine's played out. But from the evidence we do have, how should we view them today? Illicit relationships, sexual encounters or abuse? I think we should view them as abuse when we look at how young she was. And this is her, the first relationship or liaison or whatever we might call it, is with her teacher, with her music master. And you know, she's just 12, 13. We would absolutely see that as abuse today. And when you look at the pattern of Catherine's subsequent relationships, she's so often in history being depicted as this kind of scarlet woman. Now, I think rightly so, we see her as preyed upon. And how much agency did she really have in any of those relationships, above all with Henry himself? Unsurprisingly, ideas about consent and premarital sex were viewed very differently in the 16th century. There is a danger in looking at this through modern eyes. And of course, society has changed beyond recognition because this is a society where kings can execute their wives as well. And that's seen as acceptable by their subjects. And it's also an age where 
women, girls, really, they're routinely married off before they even reach puberty. So this is a, a completely different time. So yes, we need to be careful in, in looking at this in a, a sort of me too generation where things are, are just thankfully very, very different. At the same time, though, I think it's equally wrong to see Catherine as this flighty, flirtatious, irresponsible woman who kind of sleeps her way around the court. I think that's just as far from the truth. However you characterise them, these experiences happened long before Catherine was married to Henry. But that didn't stop them being weaponised against her. The issue of a potential pre-contract of marriage to Francis Derham, all that constituted in Tudor canon law for a pre-contract of marriage was an agreement to marry at some point, that could just be verbal, and then also a consummation of that relationship. And Derham went to his grave arguing that there was a pre-contract between them, but Catherine went to hers arguing there wasn't. We do know that their relationship was likely consummated, and we do know, I think, from records that they likely referred to each other, perhaps jokingly, as husband and wife occasionally. But that really is the initial issue, I think, that prompts the investigation into Catherine's past relationships and and current relationships, because, of course, if she was pre-contracted to marry someone else, that would invalidate her marriage to Henry. But these past episodes weren't the only accusations made about Catherine. Let's turn now to the figure of Thomas Culpepper, who Kate mentioned earlier. Culpepper was a gentleman of the King's Privy Chamber. He and Catherine had met privately on several occasions after she became Queen. She'd given him gifts and sent him at least one letter, which has been taken by many as evidence that they were engaged in a secret love affair. But is that really what was going on here? I think from Catherine's perspective, it seems to have been a love affair for her. We have a wonderful letter that survives, quite heartbreaking really. That is a letter that she writes to Culpepper while he's ill in 1541. And she signs that, yours as long as life endures. It's a letter filled with romantic language. And I think from her perspective, she she sees Culpepper in that way. I think from his, it's maybe a different story. He seems to have had a bit of a nasty reputation at court. He's very much a notorious ladies' man. He's also been accused of horrible things in the past that could either be attributed to him or his brother who had the same name. It's hard to tell. But he seems to have been, yeah, a a real ladies' man. And I I think for him, there was probably something more in it, perhaps even with an eye to an ageing Henry, to seeing Catherine as perhaps a potential very, very wealthy widow in the future. But for Catherine, I think she really is quite infatuated with Culpepper. And I think he does take advantage of that. But this isn't the only interpretation of events from the available evidence. I think we need to look more into the character of Thomas Culpepper. As Kate said, there is some confusion over him and his brother. Why on earth they'd named two sons the same? Very unfair to future historians, in my view. But it is possible that the Thomas Culpepper we're talking about was guilty of rape. We know that a Thomas Culpepper was that Henry VIII pardoned him. And the Culpepper who became involved with Catherine was a real favourite of Henry. And that pretty much was a get-out-of-jail-free card. If if you enjoyed the king's favour, it gave you a lot of freedom. I think Culpepper just couldn't resist, actually. I think he thrived on the danger of an affair with Catherine Howard. Now, it's interesting, Kate mentioned the letter, the famous letter that Catherine wrote to Culpepper that was kind of used to damn her, really. 
I don't know if I'm looking at this too much with the wisdom of hindsight, but reading that letter, there is an element of, of Catherine, I think, being quite afraid of Culpepper. Certainly, it's full of romantic sentiments and that last sign-off, you know, yours as long as life endures. But she seems to be enthralled to Culpepper. It's almost a sort of pleading language, really. There is an element, I think, of fear on Catherine's part. And things have clearly just rapidly got out of control. So things remain murky. But if this was a romantic affair or sexual liaison, it seems incredibly risky on Catherine's part. Especially since she would have been well aware of Henry's past record of disposing of wives. I almost think of it, if it is this kind of love from Catherine at least, as if she has had no control over the relationships in her life prior to this point. She's not chosen any of them. And with Culpepper, it does seem to be something that she is choosing. She is sort of leading on it. She's inviting him to her chambers through her her friend and lady-in-waiting, Lady Rochford. So I wonder if there's even some aspect of her trying to just take a bit more control over her life and over her agency uh, in terms of relationships. But it is, as you say, incredibly risky to be doing this. You know, the court is a very public place. They are seen, Culpepper's seen by by servants slipping in and out of Catherine's rooms. So again, if there was an element of danger in, in it, that's really quite interesting. Absolutely. And and you mentioned there, Kate, Lady Rochford. I think she's a fascinating character in all of this. So Jane Boleyn, the sister-in-law of Anne. Now, Catherine Howard is the fifth queen that Lady Rochford has served. So she knows how the court works. And she's facilitating this relationship between Catherine Howard and Thomas Culpepper. She knows full well the danger that this could cost not just Catherine's life, but her own life. And yet she facilitates it. So that's an interesting part of the whole story. Why is she doing that? There is a theory that she's actually trying to get Catherine pregnant and pass off that that child as the king's, knowing how much Henry wants that spare heir. And perhaps it's true. It seems a bit far-fetched. But that whole Lady Rochford role in this is just utterly perplexing and fascinating, I would say. How did rumours of the relationship between Catherine and Culpepper leak out into the royal court? Rumours have been building for a while in terms of servants seeing Culpepper coming in and out of Catherine's rooms. I think another another issue that really raises eyebrows is when Francis Derham comes to Pontefract Castle where Catherine and Henry are staying on their progress and he demands to be a part of Catherine's household. Francis is obviously uh, this very jealous, he's very manipulative, he seems to be very possessive as well. And Catherine, I think, feels really backed into a corner. She has to keep him on her good side, really. He knows too much that could really damage her. So she does allow him to become a member of her household as a gentleman usher. And he's really sort of a nobody from nowhere for most people at court. So it does really raise eyebrows about why she's appointed him to her household. How should we interpret these actions from Catherine? Was she buying off the man who'd once potentially abused her as a child? I think so. And I think the whole Howard family, you know, the Dowager Duchess of Norfolk, who was aware of what had happened in her household, at least in retrospect, if not at the time, she was also, I think, in this kind of position of trying to buy Deerham a little bit and keep him happy because they all knew that he he could bring about her downfall. And before long, these rumours of the Queen's indiscretions reached the King's inner circle. So... 
it was all via the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer. And you can imagine them all debating, or I'd like to, the privy councillors, when, when this became news, OK, who's going to tell the king? because that's not a job you want to do when Henry has a habit of shooting the messenger. So it's down to poor old Cranmer, who is, you know, much beloved by Henry. And uh, I love the fact that rather than just tell Henry to his face, he leaves him a note. So he, he just daren't actually say the words. So he waits until Henry is in the holy closet in, in the chapel royal at Hampton Court, so, you know, he's talking to God. He can't get angry, <laughs> slips a little note in, and that's when Henry finds out. What was Cranmer's motivation for breaking the bad news to Henry? Was he simply acting as a loyal servant to his master? Or were there political incentives for the disclosure? Well, I think a bit of both, because there was certainly no love lost between Cranmer and Norfolk. So Catherine's uncle, you know, he wasn't a great friend of the Howards by any means. But he was a man of God. He had a very keen conscience. And he knew that if he kept such information, even though at this stage it was kind of hearsay, rumour, if he kept that information to himself, he was effectively aiding and abetting this crime as it was, because Catherine had concealed her past and perhaps her present as well. So Cranmer did really the only thing he could do. This was not information that he could keep to himself. And as you might expect, Henry did not respond well. Henry's reaction before the fury is one of devastation. And I think this really then reflects that that early depression I referred to in the marriage, that sense that Henry really knows he's not the man he once was. And he is heartbroken by this betrayal, if such it is. And he demands, the first thing he demands is a thorough investigation because he doesn't want to believe it. Uh, so he doesn't just leap straight to what he usually does and, and kind of arrest execution. He really wants this to be wrong. In Henry's previous marriages, accusations of misconduct or doubts about the validity of the union always conveniently arose when Henry was already casting around for a get-out clause. But this time it was different. With Catherine, he had had the rug pulled from under him. This came out of the blue and it broke Henry's heart. This was absolutely not any means of getting rid of Catherine. Henry was blissfully happy with Catherine. He wanted to stay married to her. Now the tables were turned on him and he was getting a taste, I'm afraid, of his own medicine. Before long, events were slipping out of control for Catherine. Catherine must have got a rather gradual sense that things were going awry. Henry just sort of abandons Hampton Court Palace. He just leaves in a fit of rage, you could say, and Catherine is left. And I think she will start to would have started to realise that something was wrong. It's actually Cranmer himself who leads the talks with Catherine, the interrogation of Catherine. And I think he really lets Catherine rile herself up really into this state of real panic and fear about the potential outcomes of this situation to the point that when he does interrogate her or question her, she gives 
confessions, really, fairly readily about her relationships in prior to her marriage and, and also uh, during, although she she initially panics a bit, I think, and, and, and you know, she accuses Frances Deerham of raping her. She states that it wasn't consensual, but I think there is a real sense of, of just hysteria at this point and, and panic, as you would. You know, she's she knows what's happened to wives before her. Uh, she knows what's, what is possibly about to happen to her as well. And the confession that spilled out of the terrified Catherine was damning. She admitted to sexual relationships with Mannix and later Culpepper, stating that Deerham used her, quote, as a man doth use his wife many and sundry times. Explaining why she had not made her past known to Henry, she claimed to be so, quote, blinded with the desire for worldly glory that I could not, nor had grace, to consider how great a fault it was to conceal my former faults from your majesty. It seems remarkable that Catherine gave such a full and frank confession. But if you look more closely at the situation she found herself in, then things begin to make more sense. I think her initial reaction was to deny, but but then she very quickly, I think, realises what's at stake here. And actually, Henry sends a, a messenger to Catherine, and that is that if she is truthful, he will be merciful. And so I think she thinks, OK, I can I can be absolutely honest here, or as honest as, as she felt was necessary, and he will show mercy. But again, at this point, initially, they are just sort of questioning her prior relationships um, and that pre-contract. And then it, Culpepper comes up sort of as the investigation's go on and that's I think when things take a turn for the worse. I think that's right. It starts off bad enough in thinking that Catherine has a past but then they find out she's got a present as well and and that makes the whole thing so much worse. And even though Catherine shows quite a lot of, of naivety certainly in believing Henry's promise to kind of be lenient I think she knows as well that writing is on the wall and it's interesting to me that she knows what she has to do when she's first accused, she tries to get to Henry because she knows if she doesn't do that, it's not going to go well. Her cousin Anne Boleyn failed to actually get a meeting with Henry after her arrest. So according to Hampton Court legend, uh, she runs screaming along this corridor in Hampton Court, trying to reach the king, failing. She's pulled back by the guards. And that is now known as the Haunted Gallery in Hampton Court because it's said her agonised screams can still be heard at certain times of the day or night. I'm sorry to disabuse our listeners, but that corridor could not have been where Catherine ran, even if she did run screaming to try and reach Henry VIII. On the 1st of December, Deerham and Culpepper were tried for treason at Guildhall and found guilty. Was this outcome inevitable? Did this trial, like so many before in Henry's reign, simply have a foregone conclusion? I think, as with likely with, with Anne Boleyn's execution as well, I think things were certainly foregone at this point for Henry. I think, as Tracy said, he was so hurt and betrayed by what seems to have happened. I think he seems to have taken it very personally, and I actually think you can see his hand very much behind each stage of Catherine's downfall and her execution. I think he wanted her to suffer, and I think the same probably for, for Francis and Culpepper. Culpepper did say that in his testimony that he had never committed adultery with Catherine. It but he had intended to. And this is where we come to that quite interesting point of what becomes treason. But at this point in, in Henry's reign, perhaps uh, in a slightly tyrannical way, the, the thought to commit an act was as bad as committing the act itself. Um, so even intention to commit adultery would condemn him. 
There's no inference that Catherine or Culpepper are plotting to murder Henry, but there is an inference that they're thinking of when Henry's no longer alive, and that's treason. The downfall of Culpepper and Durham was both swift and grisly. On the 10th of December, they were both executed at Tyburn. Culpepper was beheaded, but Durham, despite his pleas for Henry's mercy, was hanged, drawn and quartered, castrated and disemboweled in the process. With the hideous fates of Culpepper and Durham hanging over her, Catherine was now in confinement at Sion House. Chapuis reported how the young queen, quote, believes that her end will be on the scaffold. Catherine could clearly feel the net tightening around her. In February 1542, she was condemned without trial by an act of attainder. And by that point, she must have realised that there was no way out. And this is when the the Tudor age, we remind ourselves yet again how different standards were. Here we have a king who's already been married four times. And the fact that his fifth wife has a past is inexcusable. So she has to be his rose without a thorn. Her virginity is an absolutely essential prerequisite for Henry. And finding out that she didn't come to him a virgin is something he can never forgive or forget. And it's her downfall. The idea of his wife having a sexual history was more than Henry could stomach. And by this point, any love or infatuation Henry had felt for Catherine had evaporated. His wounded pride transformed his young bride into an object of revulsion. And we know that even before the trial, he had ordered that Catherine's jewels and even some of her clothes be seized almost from her back. You know, he wanted everything to be returned to him. He wanted to deprive her of all of those gifts with which he'd showered her early in their marriage. He was devastated and he was humiliated. And this was not a man who reacted well to being humiliated. He had to take revenge of the most severe kind. What can we say about Catherine's emotional state at this time? Well, reports from her time in the Tower gave an impression of a woman on the brink of mental collapse who, quote, torments herself miserably without ceasing. It must have been a petrifying situation. A terror, panic, hysteria. There's a very emotional story that, that is associated with Catherine at this time, which is that she asked for the executioner's block to be brought to her room so that she could practice laying her head down in the correct manner. And that's something that we can see, I think, throughout Catherine's queenship. She's always been very eager to learn and eager to present herself in the best way. And, and what's so sort of devastating about that is that that seems to have continued right up until the very end for her. And by the 12th of February, 1542, Catherine's time had finally run out. She was told to prepare for her execution in the morning. At 9am, the prisoner was taken out to Tower Green to meet her fate. Well, Catherine was executed alongside Lady Rochford, who mentioned earlier. And actually, horrifically for Lady Rochford, she had suffered a complete mental breakdown upon imprisonment. And Henry had actually ordered that she be taken away from the tower to be essentially nursed back to health to then be brought back to be executed. So it's the two friends, really, who are being executed together. 
While one report of the execution scene describes Catherine as, quote, so weak that she could hardly speak. Another details how the young queen, quote, made a most godly and Christian end in her final speech by the executioner's block, declaring herself justly condemned for breaking God's commandments. Catherine's executed with an axe, not with a sword like her cousin Anne, and she's executed first before then Lady Rochford has to lay her head on the same block with the blood still warm and and be executed as well. So it's obviously a very, very sombre affair and quite sad that the two of them were together at the end. Catherine is believed to have been around 20 or 21 at the time of her death there's a chance that she may have been as young as 18. To us, that detail just makes it an even more shocking scene to imagine. But how is the execution of such a young, vivacious queen seen by contemporaries? It's always difficult to get to the truth when we're talking about public opinion because, of course, in theory, everybody absolutely was behind the king and I don't think anybody would have dared to speak up in Catherine's defence at this stage. She had betrayed him. And again, we must avoid looking at this from 2022 because her contemporaries would absolutely have agreed with Henry that her behaviour, her concealment of her past was inexcusable. So you would look in vain, really, for anyone to speak up on Catherine's behalf. Henry had a track record for moving on after disposing of a wife with what Tracy called pathological swiftness in a previous episode. But this time, it was different. There's a change in Henry and his reaction to the execution of his fifth wife. We've seen, and particularly with with Anne Boleyn, how brutally swiftly he moves on. He's already got somebody else lined up. That's not the case now. We had already seen Henry starting to suffer from what we might call depression just after marrying Catherine, actually. And now that comes back with force. Henry is plunged into this deep melancholy, as it's described at the time. He retreats into his privy chamber. In fact, he has even more private secret apartments built. He doesn't want to be seen anymore. He wants to live most of his life in private. He wants to kind of lick his wounds. But I think genuinely for Henry, he's heartbroken And that sense of betrayal for a king who's already paranoid is more than he can bear. He's increasingly frail and he's often seen to be weeping. He really is suffering, I think, a complete mental breakdown. This Renaissance prince has now descended into tyranny, into betrayal, into execution. And there's a sense of a gathering storm now, I think. But while the king may have been suffering, the real victim of Henry's insecurity and emotional anguish was Catherine, a vibrant young woman subjected to a hideous premature death for sexual crimes that may well not have been her own. When we run through the caricatures of the six wives, Catherine is often dismissed as superficial, stupid, promiscuous and naive. But how should we remember her instead? I think we should remember Catherine Howard as 
a multifaceted, multidimensional woman who is not just defined by her sexuality. Yes, she enjoyed fine things and clothes and jewels, but she showed mercy. She was generous. Um, you know, she really took her role as queen consort seriously. She was a master of sort of etiquette and decorum. So, so there really was so much to her that I think has been reduced uh, by traditional histories. I think it's very important for us to remember the attitudes of the 16th century, but we can't necessarily judge her by them today. I think she deserves redemption, really, from how history has painted her out to be, this one-dimensional character. There was so much more to her. It's about time, really, that that is seen. Thanks to my guests for this episode, Dr Tracy Borman and Kate McCaffrey. Kate is a historian and researcher and a curator at Hever Castle. Tracy is a historian, joint chief curator of historic royal palaces, and the author of books including Henry VIII and the Men Who Made Him and The Private Lives of the Tudors. If you enjoyed this episode about Catherine Howard, then head over to our website historyextra.com forward slash six wives to watch a brand new video with historian Kate McCaffrey, where she'll be answering key questions about Catherine Howard. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer-Arden and Ben Hewitt. It was researched and written by me, Ellie Cawthorn. Additional checks by Rob Attar and Josette Reeves.